Welcome to Nobody Told Me. I'm Laura Owens. And I'm Jan Black. Did you know your brain consumes about 20% of the calories you eat each day? On this episode, we're going to find out how the foods you eat impact your mental health. And joining us is Dr. Drew Ramsey, a nutritional psychiatrist and an assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at Columbia University. Dr. Ramsey is the founder of the Brain Food Clinic in New York City and the author of several books, the latest of which is called Eat to Beat Depression and Anxiety, Nourish Your Way to Better Mental Health in Six Weeks. Dr. Ramsey, thank you so very much for joining us. Thank you. It's great to be here with you both. There are so many questions we have for you. I almost don't know where to start, but I think a good place is if you could tell us what nutritional psychiatry is. Nutritional psychiatry is a new field in mental health that looks at the relationship between what we eat and our overall brain health and mental health. And and the goal of nutritional psychiatry is to use food and nutrition to help everyone optimize their brain function and also to treat and prevent mental health conditions like depression and anxiety. I'm guessing that most people don't come to you as a first resource because I have been seen by a psychiatrist for years for depression and I hadn't heard of nutritional psychiatry. So what typically brings them? Is it that they've tried pills and they feel like they want to try something else because they're not working? Well, and thank you for being open about your own mental health. Um, for for one, that we're I'm a general psychiatrist. That's how I got into this. And so, oftentimes, people come to see us for the general uh, mental health concerns: anxiety, depression. We do a lot of psychotherapy, a lot of work with trauma and um, uh, sexual health in our clinic as well. So. What happens though is when we approach all of those concerns, all mental health concerns, we want to look at some of a treatment through the lens of nutrition, of understanding what do our patients and clients consume, how do they think about food, and 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 how do they think about their personal psychology of nourishment and self-care? And food is such a big piece of that and such a great in some ways, metric of that, whether we feel overwhelmed and out of control or, or, or guilty and shameful when we eat or when we feel really confident and organized and that we are uh, really nourishing our health and our mental health. So nutritional psychiatry really try and help people get into that stance. Is it generally true that what's good for the body is good for the brain as far as food is concerned? Well, it's generally true because the brain is the most important part of the body. And so our separation of of those two entities of of mind and body and brain and body really has has done a a kind of disservice to our health where, you know, even though we know what we eat affects how we feel, when I talk to people about how their food affects their mental health, i.e. how they feel, it's very surprising or that certain foods really cause to your brain to shrink faster as you age, whereas other foods seem to preserve your brain as it uh, ages. And I, I know which of those diets I want to be on. I, I want to take care of my brain because it's, it's, you know, it's the best asset that all of us have, and it really deserves much more care. Why do we tend to go for foods that are high in fat and sodium and sugar when we're stressed, even though those are the worst for us? You would think that the brain would naturally want to go for something that it knows would make it feel better. Mm-hmm. Well, When your brain gets stressed and the alarms go off, remember, it's been evolving for uh, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years. Modern food has been around for a hundred. And so oftentimes in the past, when we were stressed, 
that stress was that we were hungry or that stress was, you know, we were about to, to maybe fight a battle or have to, you know, flee our village and run for our lives. And so we naturally would be drawn towards safe calories. That's what sweet has always meant to the human brain. If it's sweet, it's safe. And then fat, because fat, you know, per bite, fat just gets you more fuel than anything else. You get twice as many calories in a bite of fat as you do a bite of carbohydrate. And so that's one of the reasons that we crave those foods when we're stressed. Uh, another reason is that we've really been pushed and kind of marketed the idea that what we should do when we're stressed is eat some delicious um, chocolate cake. And that we have all kinds of ways that's been packaged for us and, 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 and all sorts of flavors If chocolate cake isn't your thing. There's something that is maybe it's only a hundred calories of some delicious frozen bite of something. But the, the idea that we can comfort ourselves with food has really been um, you know, it's both something that's in our genes and physiological, but also something that food markers have really capitalized on. Um, th th there's also, I would say, as a, uh, as a psychiatrist, there's the um, primitivity of the response. That when we think about how we grow and evolve, what we hope for, for example, in the psychotherapy is that we begin to use more mature defenses that it's not that, oh man, I'm upset. Now I've got to have a bowl of pasta uh, or a drink or a cigarette right? that we say, well, now I'm upset. I'm going to, I'm going to sit with that feeling for a se second. I'm going to understand it. I'm going to use my various tools, whether that's breathing or exercise or primal scream therapy, whatever it is to deal with that feeling. So I don't have to just have this automaticity of this, you know, kind of biological urge take over my life. We mentioned that the title of your book is Eat to Beat Depression and Anxiety, Nourish Your Way to Better Mental Health in Six Weeks. So tell us a little bit about the program that you advise for people if they are trying to find a way to have what they eat improve their mental health. Well, thank you so much for mentioning the book again. And I really hope it's a, a, an important resource for people. When we work with individuals in our clinic, we, we take a very detailed history and understand a lot about them as eaters, as well as their mental health. And, and obviously in a book, you know, we, we can't quite do that as well, but we can approximate it. And we've tried to break down that process for people, both how we think about you as an eater. There's a chapter, chapter six, eater, heal thyself, which really asks people to step back or at least examine where their food values came from. I meet so many eaters who are I'm eating a paleo diet or trying keto or are they vegan and plant-based now? And the reasoning behind it is really quite intriguing often in terms of what motivates us, where we're influenced, where our ideas come from, how science is valued in our opinions. Uh, so the plan in nutritional psychiatry in general works via food categories. So instead of just emphasizing, gosh, you've got to eat wild salmon and blueberries and kale, you know, those foods that we all kind of think are brain foods, we try to emphasize understanding your relationship with the food category. So the six-week plan walks people through five categories. And then the last week of the plan is more about your stance within your food community and trying to help people make some initial steps to improve that. An example of a food category is something like leafy greens or seafood. And the idea is to really try and understand what are the brain benefits and mental health benefits of that food category. So for seafood, it's the long chain omega-3 fats, all of the B12 you find, all of the great complete protein. Also, seafood is really the, 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 the protein source, if done right, that has the least environmental impact. Uh, 
another example is uh, nuts and beans. Great, great category, really inexpensive, high nutrient density. Uh, we, we have um, black beans, gosh, multiple times a week in our house, red beans, um, nuts are just a staple of, of my wife's purse, uh, her glove compartment, all of the places that my wife hides delicious foods for us to eat. But, but almonds, walnuts, cashews, raw and unsalted, that's just a real staple of our diet. And one of those foods we encourage people to snack on and to increase their consumption of, just like dark chocolate. Uh, it's, not, it's not just the fish and the leafy greens. Uh, but when you, when you look at the studies of this, what's fascinating is that it just, it, it just takes like a, a, a serving of fish a week. Uh, in, in some studies where people, a third of people with depression who are already in treatment went to full remission when they put on the Mediterranean diet. And if you look at the details of that study, what's really striking is that they add in some healthy foods. They add in some, some lentils and some beans and, um, and some seafood and more plants uh, and half a serving of fruit a day. But, but what's really interesting, the big part of the study, it feels in the results is that they decreased unhealthy foods, processed foods, junk food, fast food by 22 servings per week. And, and so I think it, it, for me as a clinician, what I really look at for individuals is where is somebody struggling? Same thing I do in my own life. Where am I having a hard time? Um, uh, for me, it usually revolves around um uncreative pasta, easy pizza, trying to order healthy at a restaurant, but, but I always end up ordering the onion rings too, <laughs> right? Right. Like sort of ways that, that, um, um, I noticed that I, I'm in a new kitchen and I just haven't cooked yet. I don't feel it. I feel upset by the move and the transition and, and just kind of, I don't know, yesterday I woke up and I started thinking about steamed bok choy for some reason of really trying to tap into how I'm going to reclaim some of my healthy eating and, and brain healthy eating and focusing again on these food categories. I think, wow, my leafy green game has just sucked this week. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so yeah. What am I going to do? And then I think, well, no, it didn't. You know, I had that little gem salad with anchovies on it Monday night. That was pretty good. I had some sauteed greens Tuesday night that my wife made. That was really good. So, you know, I, I, I think it's also where it's very important for us all to keep score and count, count the stuff you do well. Um, even if it's just that, you know, you're not eating the healthiest food, but you're doing a better job keeping on schedule, eating regularly. So you're not bottoming out and getting hungry, or you're trying uh, to eat less in the morning and really dealing with hunger better, whatever it is that you're succeeding at. It's really important to celebrate that. I find that doesn't get emphasized enough, right? We're always so focused on what we need to do better and, and what new thing we should learn about. And, and that's great. I love self-improvement, but there's also the, the importance of the just really noting and, and having gratitude towards the power of yourself. People can't have the expectation of immediate results in the sense that if they have pizza for breakfast and have a salad for lunch, that that's all of a sudden going to make them less anxious for their meeting later in the day, right? It can't just be like a one-time thing. Well, I think there are one-time meals that can make people more anxious if you're sensitive to caffeine or you're sensitive to the molecules in plants called theobromines that are like caffeine. You'll find those in dark chocolate. Um, there are some stimulating compounds in caffeine. Usually those are a little better tolerated because there's also some L-theanine in there. Um, but, but the, the point is that, uh, you're right. Overall, we're looking to decrease inflammation and promote brain growth with my eating plans. My hope is that your brain is bigger. Like if you eat these foods at the end of, uh, you know, 
a lifetime of eating them, but, but really your brain starts to shrink in your fifties and sixties. I'm all, I'm, I'm getting close to 50 now. Um, and, and you begin to feel it a little bit, you know, just, uh, um, you find yourself repeating stories. You hear friends who, you know, are really sharp and they're telling you that thing they just told you, you have a harder time finding keys and words and names of, I'm still working on a name that a medical student asked me for a colleague and I can like see it almost. (laughs) So, so your dietary pattern, what you eat really affects how fast your brain shrinks. And, and that's by extension, the reason that is, let's just talk a little, why is that? Why does how we live our lives have anything to do with the size of our brain? And it's because our brains are constantly growing. And then as we age, there's more of a headwind where our brains are beginning to accelerate in the rate at which they shrink. And so with how we live, namely diet, movement, and sleep, but there are a number of other factors, we we really can help preserve our brain and have more brain cells. And and so that, uh, the, the, the six weeks that I asked for, that's because in my experience treating people with clinical depression, it takes four to six weeks for medications to work. It often takes you know, four to six weeks, two months for psychotherapy to even start working a little bit. A lot of times the psychotherapy, it's, it's hard at the, the beginning where people are maybe opening up for the first time or processing something like a trauma where, you know, it, it, it's hard to feel, you know, quote unquote better uh, right away because you're dealing with something really tough. Um, but w- w- when we think about the downstream effects of medication, psychotherapy, all of our treatments and mental health, including food, what we're really trying to do is get brains to kind of sprout and make new connections and building those connections takes a little bit of time. So I think you see immediate effects that everybody listening today makes kind of pledge to themselves. They're they're, instead of focusing and feeling guilty about all the bad stuff, they're going to try and minimize it. You know, still can be in there. I still eat ice cream. I had a piece of pizza last night. I mean, uh, uh, but, but you're going to really emphasize also including more of these food categories. My little rhyme is seafood, greens, nuts, and beans, and a little dark chocolate. It doesn't have to be a little dark chocolate. You can eat the whole bar. That's fine. With me. <laughs> uh, and, and incorporating more of those foods into your meal plan, your grocery cart. What, what happens? For some people, I find, especially people who have been in a state of like what to do, confusion, not sure what the next step is, they begin to get a, a kind of a little bit of a boost right away where there's a sense of empowerment that they've transcended all of the strange marketing messages and weird ideas people have about food. And they've made a commitment to, you know, these, these, I call them the power players in eat to beat depression and anxiety. There's nothing that's that surprising. They're foods like cashews and pumpkin seeds and red peppers and kale, any dark leafy green, really. Um, uh, they're, uh, little fish like anchovies and sardines or bivalves, mussels, clams, and oysters, but also things like eggs and grass-fed beef. Uh, and the, the hope is that you're including more of these in your diet and that over four to six weeks, you do begin to feel a lessening of depressive and anxiety symptoms. If you do change your diet to be more brain-friendly, could you reasonably expect to say lower the dosage of antidepressants that you're on? Yeah, I, I think it really depends on the person. And and I get that question a lot. I think it's a great question. It's never really my goal because I, I'm interested in treating depression. And and I've I've been around the block enough times with patients that I 
I see that some people do better on medicines. And when they try to stop medicines, they, they tune up their lifestyle. It's great for them, but then it really, they feel kind of defeated. They're doing all this work and, and they stop their medicine or, or decrease it. And their depression or anxiety comes back. Um, I, so I just like to honor that some people, they just need a high dose of a medication. I also think there's this weird thing we do with meds. where like, if you're taking 25 as a loft, it's okay. But if you're taking 200 as a loft, it's like, whoa. <laughs> and that's also not how it works because we're all different in how we process medications and how our brains respond to different medications. And there's a stigma that gets associated, right? Like, oh, you're on such a high dose. You must be really depressed. Whereas that's not at all true. It's just, you're on a high dose because like your body chews it up faster or, you know, your brain's just wired a little differently that that's the dose that works. So I do think when patients want to stop medications, which, which, or, or try stopping medications, the first thing is to think, is that an appropriate thing for you? Um, and I, and I mean that really frankly and, and, and kindly, and I would say lovingly, I just know a lot of folks and a lot of patients who, you know, they're on medications because they have significant addiction or really bad suicidal thoughts, or they slip into psychosis. And, and oftentimes, you know, um, stopping meds isn't a good idea. If you've been on medications for a long time, so 25% of women over the age of 60 in America take an antidepressant. And, and I always like to say that it, nobody's, that's all voluntary. And I like to believe that women over the age of 60, they know what the hell they're doing. And so right. yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like yeah. to gaslight them like, oh gosh, they're all being taken advantage of and over-medicated. It's like, I don't know. Some of them are in perimenopause and the meds help a lot. And so, but a lot of people I think have concerns about being on medications. I appreciate that. And so when, when someone in our clinic and, and this happens, people come to us and say, I've been on Zola forever or Lexapro or Prozac or Celexa, and I want to taper off of it. The thing that's new about that is we understand that serotonin withdrawal syndrome is something that affects more people than we thought and is really, really problematic for some folks. So we taper more slowly now. Mm -hmm. So really dropping by, you know, not half your dose, but maybe a third of your dose and just sitting there for a little while. Um, and then really bolstering the things that we know that are natural antidepressants, right? Being social, um, uh, exercising. And this is where diet also, I think, is a new part of the plan that if you're eating a bunch of fast food and you want to stop your antidepressant, of course, it's your choice. You can do whatever you want, but I really recommend you start really eating nutrient-dense food. You feed your microbiome with fermented food and plants. You max out your omega-3 intake by eating more sardines and anchovies because, naturally when people stop medicine, one of the things that happens is really a difficult phase for patients is, you know, there's this almost feeling they're like, you know, kind of like putting their finger in the wind of, of a lot of like, how do I feel? And if they feel a little off, like, is that because the medicine's not working? Is that because I'm depressed again? Right. It's a very um, challenging time where people are kind of checking in, especially if you've had significant depression or been hospitalized. So um, that's where having things to do like cooking, shopping, going to the farmer's market, batch cooking, having people over for dinner. That's, there's sort of two aspects of nutritional psychiatry in my mind. There's, a, there's all the like cool science and data around how it helps our brains and how it can treat mental health conditions. And then there's this part that is around the psychology of connecting and eating that you know, I, I'm looking forward to my next meal with friends. I just went out to dinner and now that, uh, you know, we're in a phase of the pandemic where we can dine with friends again. It feels so nice to just, you know, share a meal uh, with, with friends and, uh, or to have people over for dinner. Um, or if you're just, you know, living alone, that, that the difference in that feeling, I always have this when it's Sunday night, 
my fridge is full of my patch cooked veggies. My clothes are laid out for Monday, right? I'm, I'm reading in bed with a cup of tea and it's nine o'clock. And I'm really like, I am, I'm nailing the self-care right? versus, <laughs> you know, it's Sunday night. It's like 11. I'm like binge watching with like some like crumbs on my, on my chin and, right. you know, like a, like a drink in my hand, <laughs> you know, and it's just, we, we all, I think we've all been in both of those. I hope most of us right. have been in both of those <laughs> right. situations, right? It just, um, when, to get back to your question in terms of stopping medications, right? That there's just, um, there's a hope I have that we better equip people with this information because I appreciate lots of people want to do that. And, and I really believe as a physician, we need to do a much better job in uh, appreciating and respecting patient autonomy. I'm not here to tell you what to do. I'm here to be your partner as you figure out what to do based on the evidence I can provide you with and, and the clinical experience I have, but also with, with your preferences and, and your values. And that's different for everybody. Let's say you're somebody listening to the show who hears what you're saying and says, I could really up my intake of omega-3s, for example, but I don't like fish. Can they go and get a supplement? Can they get krill oil or fish oil? And is that the same for them as it would be if they got it through their foods? You can do those things. I don't think it's the same. Let me tell you the story of a little Indiana farm boy named Drew Ramsey who never ate any seafood. <laughs> <laughs> His mother, who is is lovely in a lot of ways, but she tortured him. His first memory of fish is he was about five and she made some sort of fish milkshake. I don't really know what it was. It came out of the blender. It was disgusting. <laughs> and and Drew is he's a stubborn boy. He didn't eat any fish then until well, really ever. And uh, it was really disgusting to him. And always when they'd serve it in the school cafeteria, he would get sick and sometimes have to call his mommy to come get him to go home. So I appreciate seafood is disgusting to a lot of people. The story of Drew Ramsey continues that as I learned about the brain health benefits and as I was like a young doctor living in Manhattan with uh, my, my new young wife and we were you know, gallivanting around town, eating in restaurants and all that stuff. I realized New York city is by the ocean and there's all this seafood there. And I ate a little bit, I guess, to be honest, I, I started eating a little sushi and I really just worked on developing my palate on cooking seafood. I realized that I was really scared of seafood. I didn't know how to cook it or prepare it. And I, I did, and I, I didn't quite understand that, you know, that fishy smell that I associated, that's not good seafood. That's actually the smell of rancid omega-3 fats. Just like when you put an almond in your mouth and it tastes off because the fats have oxidized. The reason what, what when we say omega-3, what we actually are talking about on the biochemical level is a, uh, a long carbon chain. So, so EPA is 22 carbons long, DHA, the longest omega-3 fat we eat that you find it's found, it starts in algae and then it gets bioconcentrated in seafood. It's 24 carbons long. These are, uh, uh, they have lots of double bonds. So they've got a lot of energy in them, but because of all that energy, they, they easily oxidize. That's why, that's why when you put a piece of fish out on a counter next to, let's say a steak, the fish is going to smell fishy quickly. Whereas the steak won't because the steak has more saturated fats. Those saturated fats don't oxidize as quickly. Actually, it's very hard to oxidize saturated fats. So this is a long-winded way of saying, if you don't eat seafood, I, I hope you'll get curious because I did, and I think it's been really good for my health. 
there's certainly if you don't eat seafood or if you have moral objections to eating seafood or um, if it's just you're allergic to seafood, you certainly can get short-chain omega-3 fats, ALA, from things like flaxseed oil and plants. Um, it, we don't convert ALA to as much EPA and DHA. Uh, everyone's a little different, but you know the idea is that people, and, and some of the science really supporting it, is that people who eat more omega-3 fats, they tend to have better mental health and brain outcomes. Um, you can do that with a fish oil. Uh, I prescribe a lemon flavored liquid fish oil in my office. You can do it with fish oil pills. Remember the studies are uh, usually around 1500 to 2000 milligrams of omega-3 fats. Usually the pills say that, but that's not what they have in them. And often it's two pills. If you look at the containers. So that's wow. where I recommend people eating you know, there's all kinds of ways to flavor fish. I think it's also just most of us, especially most people raised in, in America with an American culture, you know, our exposure to and knowledge of fish and seafood and the various flavors. I'm, I'm thinking about I'm the good friend in New York who is Brazilian and she has uh, a wonderful restaurant called Casa. And in Casa restaurant, there's a dish called moqueca. And moqueca is like a coconut milk seafood stew that's served over rice with this stuff called farofa, which is this like, I don't even know what farofa is. It's this like bacon grain deliciousness, little crumble, and, and a big, big heaping pile of garlic collard greens. My mouth is watering. This is like, <laughs> but, but, you know, when, when I think about little Drew Ramsey, that we're talking about who is like, you know, nauseous from the seafood and, and traumatized by his fish smoothie that his mom gave him. I think about um, the journey or my journey to Mokeka and to enjoying sushi and making mussels at home and to shucking oysters for my friends on my back porch and all the richness that my life has gotten via uh, really kind of challenging my attitudes and misperceptions about seafood. So short answer, yes, you can get it through a supplement, but I feel like my job in this space is to really remind everyone about the power of food, about your power to obtain, prepare, and enjoy better quality food for your brain. And that, that everybody should feel empowered and excited about that because you know, the science is really in. There's a lot you can do to improve your mental health through food. What kind of an impact do you think the pandemic has had on our eating and mental health? Well, I think initially there was a confrontation we all had. We were incredibly anxious. Everyone had insomnia. There was a fear. I mean, I, 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 went, I still remember going into the grocery store the first time I had on a raincoat, goggles, um, uh, an N95 mask. I was gloved <laughs> up. I mean, it was, and I was in really rural America. This was like March, 2020. And, and, uh, and I remember I looked at this old farmer looked at me and he's like, buddy, are you okay? <laughs> I was like, no, I'm not okay. I'm freaked out and I should be. And, and so we then were cooking at home. So we, at one point, I don't remember the final count. It was like 200, 300 and something of dinners we cooked at home for our kids who are 10 and seven and my parents who are in their eighties. And, and I think for everybody that was in a mixed generational household like us and, and for everybody who's cooking for kids or just cooking for yourself, right? That there's this reckoning of like what you had available for the first time there for a little bit, a lot of Americans experienced food insecurity. It's very common in America, hunger and food insecurity, not really knowing that your food supply is secure, but a lot of us live in a very privileged state where we eat whatever we want and we don't have an issue with food insecurity. So a lot of people confront, you know, they're, they're there, you're looking for your organic broccoli. There is not any, and you're looking for your salmon. There's not any um, shelves were empty. 
So I think there was that phase. There was the sourdough phase where everybody kind of began to use food as medicine in the sense that making food is fun. And there's some part of us as humans that just think it's really cool that like, really, you make like mix some yeast and bacteria together with some flour and water and salt and like you make bread. That's, that's pretty fun. <laughs> and so, uh, and then I, I think there, everyone got into a groove. And, and I can talk just mostly about, I mean, our house and our, my patients, but, but in our house, that groove included more canned beans. As we got like fatigued, we usually, before pandemic, we were big bean soakers. Uh, as like one of the three words I'd use to define my, or just three descriptors I used to describe my wife, bean soaker would be one of them. <laughs> and, uh, but during the pandemic, there's just something about the, the chronically always cranking out meals. We started using more frozen veggies, more canned beans, more like, oh, we're going to have pasta, but we're going to dump a can of white beans in with the pasta. Uh, we did um, a lot more um, canned fish. That's something that I was really happy about because I, I'd, I'd known its great value. I'd used it a little bit like a can of anchovies in my Caesar salad, but my wild salmon, canned wild salmon game was weak. Man, <laughs> pandemic, it's strong. Now. I make a wild salmon burger that just, it's amazing. It's, it's the recipe that's in eat to beat depression and anxiety. It gave me one of my favorite daddy moments when my daughter, uh, I made them. And then uh, like two days later, my da daughter came into the kitchen and said, dad, will you make those wild salmon burgers from your book again? I was, <laughs> uh, I was like, I was like, this is the best. <laughs> As you know, our show is called nobody told me. So at the end of each show, we ask our guests, what is your nobody told me lesson? So what is it that nobody told you about the impact of eating good foods on mental health that you wish you'd known when you were younger and were not exposed to fancy good foods? That my food played a powerful part in my mental health. And that especially in periods of my life when I've really been struggling with anxiety or with depression, um, I think as I look back, I got a lot of advice, even from like some counselors, like school counselors. I, I was having a hard time focusing. I was having a hard time staying awake in class in the afternoons. Um, I was having a hard time with the like stability of my mood and my optimism. You know, and I get some advice like, and I think well, many advice like drink a glass of juice before class or, um, uh, and, and at that point I was a low fat vegetarian uh, for a chunk of my life. And, and, and I wish somebody really would have told me what we know now. And, and I guess we couldn't have, but told me about the impact of these food groups specifically on my mental health. Um, and, and specifically the foods that really can make a difference over time. Um, I, I think that would have really, uh, I know that's made a big impact in my adult life. I wonder how it would have affected me more as an adolescent, not that I ate horribly, but um, I think there was a lot I could have done better. Um, but that's what, you know, I wish somebody would have told me back in the day. I guess the other thing I wish somebody would have told me is that it was all going to be okay. Cause we were going to open up and talk about mental health for the first time in history. Cause I think, you know, especially when I'm struggling today uh, with kind of where the world is and, and the pandemic and, and the anxieties about the, you know, coming variants and the political discord and the wildfires, I, I think it, it, it's, um, it's really challenging for all of us. And what feels different to me now than when I was younger is it feels that we're talking about it. Right? One of you just mentioned that you've seen a psychiatrist and had a depression. I just talked about my mood 
that that didn't even happen 10 years ago. So I'm very uh, excited about the openness of the conversation. I think that's going to save lives. I think it's going to improve everyone's access to care. I mean, part of... um, Maybe that's what I wish no, nobody told me. No, nobody told me, you know, kid, you're going to be a treatment for a hell of a long time <laughs> and you're going to do great, buddy. I wish somebody would have told me that because I think uh, I have been in treatment um, my entire career and I've been in psychoanalysis, I've been therapy, and um, it's really helped me. It's really been my secret sauce um, when I, when I think about the prowess with which uh, I can navigate my own inner world and in, in, in which mostly I can navigate my moods. And, um, uh, you know, I, I feel a lot of gratitude. I got help doing that. And um, I don't think that's how it's often presented to people. Right. Like I said, if you're in treatment for a long time, it must mean you're really, really, really messed up. And I think like, I don't know, I guess maybe that's true. I guess there's the other way that maybe if you've been in treatment for a long time, you're just going deeper and deeper and getting stronger and stronger. And it's an exciting trip in there. Maybe that's true too. Well, Drew, we thank you so much for joining us. This has been absolutely fascinating and and we could go on for hours and hours. You're such a wealth of wisdom on this. Well, thank you, Jan and Laura. It's really a treat to speak with you. Thank you so much for the opportunity to spread the message about nutritional psychiatry. I think for everyone listening, thank you for a few minutes of of your time and of your life. And I hope if anything, you listen to so many podcasts and so much information, but just this one moment, I just hope it could stick with you. And that I would ask that some of the foods, maybe just one of the foods that we talked about today, that's intriguing to you. Maybe you haven't tried it. Like uh, you've never made my amazing gnocchi pasta, uh, gnocchi a la Glenda. It's a sardine pasta, or maybe you haven't sauteed any leafy greens. Maybe there's some other thing, just like uh, putting more nuts in the bag, but something I just ask if anything caught your mind, I'd ask in the next week, you really get intentional about adding more of that food into your diet and doing your best to feed your mental health and taking good care of your mental health and the mental health of those around you that you love. That would just, that would mean the world to me. Well, we definitely appreciate that message. Again, our thanks to Dr. Drew Ramsey. His latest book is called Eat to Beat Depression and Anxiety, Nourish Your Way to Better Mental Health in Six Weeks. It's absolutely fascinating. And his website is drewramseymd.com. I'm Jan Black. And I'm Laura Owens. You're listening to Nobody Told Me. Thank you so much for joining us. 